Welcome to The Secret Podcast, available on iTunes. And now your hosts, JM and Bernstein. Welcome again to another edition of The Secret Podcast. There has been a lot of media action as of late. The Parks Department in San Francisco did a podcast on the hunt in their town. Know Your Meme gave us a nice mention in their recent article. Thanks for that. And of course, a big thanks to Zach over at AV Club for the nice write-up as well. In addition, there's been some interesting yet inaccurate news reports, television and press, which we've addressed previously, but gang, the big news is right here. Not only is George going to reveal some game-changing news about New Orleans, but we also are going to talk to Joe Ellen Trilling, one of the artists who worked on The Secret later on in the episode. But right now, from St. Augustine, Florida, George Ward, my co-host and friend. How are you, George? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. We have a very special episode for you today. We have an interview with Joel and Trilling later, and we're going to tackle one of your favorite cities, New Orleans, Louisiana. We're talking about Image 7, and uh, what's the verse, George? It's verse 2. Verse 2. Image 7, verse 2. Oh my God, I love New Orleans. I just want to live in New Orleans. Like, There's a guy on Facebook that's trying to convince me to move to New Orleans. Well, he's not trying. But every time he says something, it's just like, I want to be in this town. Did you know in New Orleans, they have a running of the bulls, but instead of bulls, it's roller derby girls? <laughs> like, who doesn't want to live in that city? You try not to get tackled by the roller derby team? I mean, you totally try to get tackled by every single <laughs> roller derby girl. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting things about New Orleans that would seem strange to people who don't live in New Orleans, but cool to George. Oh, dude, it's, it's amazing. I just want to live there. We did have a chance to spend some time there. George was on a mission to check out some info that he was working on for somebody on Facebook. I was on Facebook. It was Quest for Treasure. It was the most clandestine mission ever, but it was from Quest for <laughs> oh, Treasure. Oh, okay. My apologies. He was working on a project with someone, super secret project with someone to go check out a spot. And I was just coming off of a tour, I think, and I had some time. And we all decided that it would be fun to go down there. George and I needed to get some pictures taken for the podcast. Brett also had some spare time. So we decided we would meet up down there. And in addition, we were doing part two of the Houston podcast with uh, Mark and everybody. We had me, you, I think Brett was there, Mark, and then all the people from the Houston Zoo. So we decided if it wasn't enough to go to New Orleans and see all that stuff and take pictures and do all this other stuff, uh, we would pile on a very intricate and long podcast on top of it. Yeah, so fun fact about that podcast, sort of a director's commentary. I had just gotten through walking from the French Quarter with Rachel and Brett when I came in to do that podcast. I drank two what is known there as Willie's Giant Cocks. And they're these huge, like, 30-ounce margaritas. I was plastered for that entire podcast. It was amazing. It's like the pitcher who threw the no-hitter on acid. Yes. And then we had pizza with crawfish on it. Like, the, the city is, New Orleans is amazing. Everything there is amazing. It was pretty cool. So what we decided to do was just kind of give you a rundown of our experience in New Orleans, because of course we checked out a ton of things and investigated a ton of stuff, including the uh, super secret spot that George was working on, which we'll get to towards the end here. Basically, we were all coming in from different places. I think Brett was flying in, I was driving down, George was driving in from Florida, and we all kind of arrived at different times. When I arrived, Brett arrived near the same time. I think he may have even picked me up from the airport or some, or maybe I picked him up. I don't remember too much. But we did a few errands and then went to the hotel to check in. And we walked down to Preservation Hall to check things out. We just thought we'd... George wasn't going to be there for many hours. I don't think you had even left yet by the time we had gotten there. You had another six hours to go. We thought we'd go check things out and get some food afterwards. So the first thing we did is we went to Preservation Hall and we examined all of the similarities between the image and some of the things that match up with what's there in real life. And then we decided to walk over to Armstrong Park to investigate what was going on over there. And of course, you see the big giant 
you know, white arch. And sure, you could call that a match to the, they're saying the bottom lip of the person in the mask. You could call that a match just as much as you could call any arch a match. You remember the entrance to Armstrong Park? Yeah. That's totally a match to the top of the clock. Like, we can't even debate that. To the top of the clock? Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. where the jewel is and, you know, the arch there. And yeah, it's totally a match. Well, they're okay. (laughs) It could be a a match to several things in the image. I was actually referring to the the bottom lip of the mask if you turn it upside down. It's because it's white. But anyway. Oh, I can see that too. So we saw that. We got into the park and I walked over to the statue. The first thing I went to look at and investigate was the hand. It was the hand that is on the trumpet, exactly the same shape and perspective as the hand in the uh, the clock. And uh, I found out that it really wasn't an exact match like I had thought from pictures that I had seen online. However, the area that the statue stands in does look a lot like the shape of the clock in the image. We noticed that. Brett and I walked around there probably about 45 minutes, and we just couldn't find anything that was really an aha moment. I mean, I know there's other people who are looking in Armstrong Park. We didn't see anything that popped out at all. George, you went and visited it on a separate occasion. Did you notice anything there that really... There's a statue of like three trumpeters combining into one or whatever, and it's got a lot of scratch marks that kind of resemble the scratch marks in the entire painting, but... Yeah, that statue was put in like 2002, so... Oh, right. The wrinkles in the hands, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That statue was put in far too late. Like, I've seen some people make that connection, but if you look down at the bottom of the statue, it tells you it was put in like 2002 or 2000-something close to 2002. There just doesn't seem to be anything that you can key in on with the verse that you can't really translate the riddles into anything that helps you in Armstrong Park to find a specific location. I don't know anything about vectors and the number seven and the Masons, but uh, nothing that stands out logically for us. So we, we moved on. We went back to Preservation Hall and we walked the other way. And when we got to Royal Street, it was like every other store on the street was a jewelry store. So we stopped in at one of the stores. I think Brett asked if Royal Street was classically known for having a lot of jewelry stores. And the lady behind the counter said, and I quote, for as long as I can remember, jewelry and antiques, yes. I guess Royal Street is classically known for having all these jewelry stores combined into like a two-block area. And it's right off St. Peter as you walk down from Preservation Hall. I took that to confirm the line where the jewels abound to be uh, Royal Street. If you take Royal Street southwest through the French Quarter, as you exit the French Quarter, you would have come to the St. Charles Hotel, uh, which could be a confirmation for the literary quote that we have from abroad in America, where he's uh, referring to the people who shelter their heads. I thought maybe it could be some kind of boundary puzzle where Armstrong Park would be one place jackson square would be another boundary preservation hall would mark your boundary on the north east and south as they all line up in a straight line on saint peter then you follow royal street where the jewels abound until you find the saint charles hotel and that kind of gives you your direction me and brett walk down royal street and of course it turns into turns into saint charles turns into saint charles and takes you right in front of lafayette square We walked down that way. Once we arrived at Lafayette Square, there was just a lot to see. I won't put the spoiler in. We went and checked out some things. Then basically we went up to the room. We got something to eat and then went back up to the room and I started trying to turn the hotel room into a makeshift studio to do our podcast in. George was on his way driving and I had passed out. I woke up Brett and I went downstairs and I saw that it was like this hotel cart full of shovels and probes and other nefarious digging implements. And I was thinking to my head, why are they doing landscaping at this hour? It's like midnight. And where are they? The hotel has no garden. And then I realized it was just George and Rachel pulling in at midnight and George had loaded all of their gear onto this hotel cart. So yeah, this big landscaping cart. And then you want to tell them what happened after you got there? We don't mess around. You guys showed up with laptops. We brought like four shovels. Like it was crazy. Yeah. I'm there with microphones and laptops. This guy's got like an air spade. He's got five GPRs. <laughs> I mean, we're going to dig stuff, man. You can't dig without a shovel. 
Right. Well, the intention was to dig. You had work with someone on a spot, and it was, you know, somewhat in proximity to where we were staying in this area we're talking about. Tell them what happened after you got there. So I didn't really work on a spot with a guy. There was a guy who just randomly posted on Q4T. He was like, hey, you know, I've got this idea. And he ran through his verse, and his verse was essentially an old wiki solve that went to Lafayette Park. And then it went to Gallier Hall across from Lafayette Park. What he had been doing was he was looking through Google Maps sort of street views of Gallier Hall. He noticed that there was a section in one of the grassy areas at Gallier Hall that seemed to be rising above the ground. And he kind of concluded from that that this hollow box has been sitting underground in this flood area. It's going to fill with water and eventually it's going to start pushing up out of the ground. He looked over time and it made total, like his solve made sense. It was a decent solve. You could see in the street view over time that the area would just kind of rise. Everybody in Quest for Treasure was like, take this down now. Take it down until you can have somebody go look at this area. Because it was seriously a decent solve. And it was the first real decent solve anybody had ever come up with with New Orleans. It's rising out of the ground like David Blaine. Right on Google Maps. I mean, it makes sense. Stuff pushes out of the ground when it's hollow. It's filled with water. Water gets up underneath it, sort of. Okay, so he's got a hypothesis that involves some science. And uh, so you decide you're going to check, help him out and check it out. I needed an excuse to go to New Orleans. I wanted to go to New Orleans forever. I know. Bananas Foster. Or rum. Oh. Um, so <laughs> I sent the guy a message and I was like, hey, everybody's telling you to take this down. So you can find somebody to go check it out. He said that he wasn't going to be able to get down there for a couple of months. I was like, look, I'll just go down this weekend and I'll check it out. For that you. was the plan. George is going to check out a spot. We're going to take some pictures. We're going to do a podcast. Everybody's going to get together and eat and drink and be merry and enjoy New Orleans. Yeah, the only person that didn't know this plan was Rachel, my fiance. <laughs> she didn't so, know. <laughs> she had no idea. So I get home and she's like, hey, what do you want to have for dinner? And I was like, well, let's get Cajun food. <laughs> She was like, okay. I was like, pack a bag. So like, what do you mean, pack a bag? Well, you know, we're going to go. It's, it's kind of far away. We might get a hotel. It's authentic. It's authentic Cajun food. We get like two hours down the road. She's like, where the hell are we going? Oh, you didn't tell her even. I didn't tell her. <laughs> we got like a quarter of the way there before she was like, look, it's, you know, getting late. Where are we going? Oh, we're going to New Orleans. <laughs> How big did her eyes get? Was she awake then? She was pretty happy. I didn't get killed. That was nice. So we got there. Oh, nice. Uh, we got everything unpacked, and the first thing I needed to do was go check out this spot. Because right. I'm looking at all these old street maps that are have this thing rising up the ground. Everybody was super excited to go see this spot, so we ran down there. We got to this guy's spot. We looked down. What was rising out of the ground was a manhole cover. And it's just that this manhole cover, you don't always cut the grass around a manhole cover. It grows up, and in street view, it looked like this large mound that was growing but it was just grass growing around a manhole cover an unkempt cover it was an unkempt cover so it's obviously not in this spot uh we got super down about that uh i texted the guy and told him sent him a picture i was like hey this is just a manhole cover but then we started piecing together some stuff that he hadn't and i think you noticed something about the pillars yeah when we were there, we looked at it, and the one thing that struck me was the size and shape of the pillar that's next to this area where, where this guy was looking at this manhole cover. And if you turn the image upside down, you'll notice that the shape of the column matches up exactly with the stem of the grandfather clock. If you turn it upside down, and then where the clock would connect with the stem... There's a couple of dimples, one on each side. Now, they're different on each side. One is a little shallower, and one has a kind of a deeper cut on the inside. I had noticed that the dimples on the pillar at Gallier Hall matched up exactly to these dimples that were in the clock. I pointed out to you that, you know, hey, this is not something that you see. First of all, they're not uniform on each side. Neither are they in the painting, and they match up exactly. It'd be really hard to misrepresent that somewhere else because it's it's so exact and so right on. So we noticed that, and then you were looking down at the street where the sidewalk meets the grass and had noticed what was down there. We knew we were kind of in the right area, right? Every one of these puzzles sort of has an obvious thing that you should see from your dig spot. Chicago had the fence and fixture. Cleveland was the entire damn planter box. And this one's got... What's basically the flying boy or the, the little image on the bottom of the face of the clock there. 
Exactly. Yeah. And when you're standing at Gallery Hall, you look across the street, that's what you see. Right. We kind of knew that even though this guy's spot was kind of a bust, we were sort of in the right spot. And the verse kind of tells you to look for 21 of something. And you're supposed to dig at the middle of 21. So I look down at the ground right where we're standing. And there are fence posts inside of the concrete all around these grassy areas of, of Gallier Hall. And I started counting them. Right. And there's 21 of them. And 11 puts you in a specific spot in that. So you got to imagine it's an L shape of these fence posts. And we did some research and found out that on the top of these fence posts, was it a match to the clock hand or was it just a fleur-de-lis? It's just a fleur-de-lis. And what it is is it's, it's removable fences. When they don't want you to go in their area, when they're blocking it off for something, generally for parades, they put big bleachers up in the area. Sometimes they park stuff there. So when they don't want you in that area for a while... They put up these temporary fences. There's other bolts in there. There's not 21 of the other bolts that these temporary fences attach to. But they're essentially like wrought iron fences with fleur-de-lis on the top of them. Imagine that being there probably in nine. We we went back as far as 2007, I think, or maybe earlier in some earlier pictures. The thing about that area, which is, uh, again, interesting towards the verse, is we found out that that's the area where the parade goes through and the mayor is there with the king and the queen right how does that go down george during mardi gras i believe it's each king and queen of each district stop to toast the mayor each king and queen of the district in the parade stop there and toast the mayor so it's a significant spot during mardi gras whether that plays into the puzzle at all or not is unknown to me but that's why those fence posts are there and are removed and put back in from time to time we had went right after, I think we went like the week after Mardi Gras is when we actually went up there. And you imagine what it's like during Mardi Gras. You imagine what it's like after Mardi Gras. Your imagination just can't cover it. There are beads everywhere. I mean, we were literally like seven days after Mardi Gras. Still, Gallier Hall was covered with beads. All of the trees were covered with beads. The parks were covered with, with beads. Everything was covered with beads. The trees were literally, they had their trunks wrapped in beads. They were just, they were bead trees, like <laughs> dirty and disgusting and gorgeous. Like everything George loves about a city. I want to move to New Orleans so bad. We knew we were in the right area and people had been looking in the Lafayette Square area for a while. Lafayette was actually, for me, was a solve for one of the verse riddles. Why don't we go over the verse real quick so people who are unfamiliar with the verse and image we're talking about. It is uh, verse number two. Yes. And uh, it goes like this. At the place where the jewels abound, 15 rows down to the ground, in the middle of 21 from end to end, only three stand watch as the sound of friends fills the afternoon hours. Here is a sovereign people who build palaces to shelter their heads for a night. Gnomes admire, Faye's delight the namesake's meeting near this site. It's a pretty cryptic verse. Like Cleveland, it seems like the dig instructions are towards the beginning, but if you try to read this one in reverse, it doesn't seem to flow like the Cleveland verse does if you do it there. I broke it down into a number of pieces, but, uh, you know, what do you have? I just want to point out that if you're standing at Gallier Hall, this verse is not cryptic at all. The same way if you're standing... You know, in Grant Park in Chicago, that verse is not cryptic. If you're standing at the Greek Cultural Gardens in Cleveland, that verse, not cryptic at all. Everything is right there for you to see. Everything makes sense. I'm a proponent of this puzzle takes you from one place to another place to another place and ends you at a spot. George, I believe, and some other people are proponents of the theory that everything that's in the verse you see from the dig spot. I don't think that's necessarily true because there's names of streets and other things being given to you. In Roanoke, he's giving you information about something that's three miles away from the dig site. So to some extent, there should be probably a good chunk of the verse uh, where you're standing to tell you where to dig at, or there should be some kind of riddle that you solve that gives you the information you need to interpret it when your boot's on the ground. But a lot of it does fit in Everything pretty much after 15 rows down to the ground, which a lot of people have determined that that could be just a, a riddle for the French Quarter itself, which is, 
you know, 15 streets that go down to the Mississippi. The quote from abroad in America, which is here is a sovereign people, etc., etc., that's something you see on your path as you walk down Royal Street going to there. Preservation Hall, you see from the image, you start there. <laughs> the judgment's still out on how these are done. So Let me ask you a question. Here is a sovereign people who build palaces to shelter their heads for a night. What's that reference? That's a direct quote from the book Abroad in America, which references the St. Charles Hotel. So that could be a reference to the street. I would agree with you there if it's a street reference. If you're standing in at Gallier Hall, what street are you on? Right. You'd be on St. Charles. So I would agree with you. You'd be on St. Charles. In about 1985, Lafayette Square went through a renovation where a lot of things sort of changed. The layout of the park changed, the sidewalks changed, the roads changed. Even Gallier Hall itself changed a good bit. I think you found a picture prior to that sometime in the 70s where you were able to count the steps up to Gallier Hall. Right. And even those changed. It seems at one point we had had a picture where there were 15 steps in the picture. I mean, if that's true, if there were 15 steps at Gallier Hall in 1980, whenever he buried it there, assuming it, that's where it was buried, then that would reign true also. The jewels abound. You still have to get from Preservation Hall down there, though. You don't have to get anywhere. <laughs> if the painting gets you to a city or maybe a park and the verse gets you to a dig site, Preservation Hall doesn't tell you anything other than New Orleans. It doesn't have to tell you anything other than New Orleans. It just all depends on perspective and how you look at these things. It remains to be seen, but hopefully we'll get to the bottom of that here soon. So that's the verse, and the image that we're looking at is the image of the grandfather clock that has the moon and the stars in the top, and then there's a clock face, and then a hand, which is holding a mask. There's a checkerboarded background, and I believe it would be the seventh image in the book if you're looking through the images. What do we have inside the image? There's a number of things. The clock face has a good amount of detail. I've seen people post matches for a clock that looks very similar to this, even has the moon and the stars in that same area above there. I believe there was one located somewhere in New Orleans, maybe a lobby of a hotel or something. There was in the lobby of a hotel, but let's be honest, man, every grandfather clock looks like that. Well, this one was a little more matched up, but it, maybe it was just inspiration. Who knows? So then you have a mask which is on a stick and a hand holding it. The nose of the mask is the shape of Lake Pontchartrain. Some people say the mask is of Louis Armstrong. It bears a resemblance to him. I would say, okay, yeah, there may be something to that, but I don't know what that clue. A lot of this, how we solve these things is based on context. So if, if it doesn't give you a clue that you can use to get somewhere or solve something, you have to consider that maybe you're barking up the wrong tree. But anyway, we have a hand holding a pole. The sleeve of the hand figure is the outline of the Mississippi River that goes around New Orleans. There are three numbers on the clock face itself. There's a 19, a 29, and a 90. The longitude and latitude for New Orleans is 29 and 90. So we have a 19 here that we're, it's unaccounted for. Then you have the word preservation on the top of the clock face, which we feel is probably a reference to Preservation Hall, the legendary jazz hall in New Orleans. We have the checkerboarded background. And in the lower right-hand corner of the painting, the checkerboarded Background bends similar to the way that the streets bend, the blocks bend around the French Quarter. So there's some resemblance to that there. We have the moon and the stars at the top of the clock, which I had mentioned before, maybe an adaptation of the other clock, some inspiration for it. We haven't found anything about the positioning of the moon in there or anything like that has popped out so far. Some coincidences, though, of the number 3 and 15 there's three fingernails. The second hand on the clock is pointing to the three, but that also means 15 seconds. And we also have the numbers three and 15 inside the verse. So that should be pointed out. There's a flower by the number 19 and 29, which is suspected to be a narcissist or the December birth flower. Did I get that right? Narcissist? Yeah. Yeah, it's the narcissist. That's a lot of the stuff that we have inside the image. Of course, there's the column, too. That You the, mentioned the New Orleans flipped upside down as the dragon. Oh, yeah, sorry. There's like a little dragon hand puppet-looking thing, but if you turn that upside down, it resembles the shape it's of Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah. And then, of course, 
the uh, the statue, the the boy that's in the strange position on the underside of the middle of the clock face, which is not an exact match for the statue in Lafayette Square, but it's pretty unmistakably close. I mean, maybe there's a perspective thing going on, yeah. but it's it's pretty unmistakable. So there's a lot of things about that spot that needed to be checked out. The uh, The three-stand watch would make sense as far as the three statues which are in Lafayette Square, which you can see from one side of Gallier Hall, but you cannot see from the other side of Gallier Hall. Right, and not only is it three statues, it's three statues of five people, but only three of those people are standing. And only three of them are actually looking at you. A couple of them are looking away into the side. Right. So that could be some interesting riddle stuff going on there with the three-stand watch and the having the two exact same sides. And there are two sides. There's another side that has 21 posts also. The columns match up as well, just in reverse. You can dig there as well, but you can't see the statues from that angle. The hall is actually itself is blocking your view, I believe. Right above that side of Gallier Hall is a security camera for the Federal Reserve. Please don't dig there. Oh, yeah. You don't want to do that. It's probably... <laughs> we're, we're digging for treasure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do not tunnel into the Federal Reserve now. Uh, that's what we have in the image, and that's what we have in the verse. And it's led many a person to Lafayette Square, but not many people have taken the time to turn around and look at Gallier Hall or even consider that he would bury something in the front lawn of a historic building like that. But apparently, you decided that you had to check it out, and you did. You can't go to New Orleans with a shovel and not put the shovel in the ground. I'm sorry. And I did. And I got a really cool picture out of it. And some other things, too. A spot was checked out, and... Um... And it was it was pretty interesting. The, the results were... Uh... Well, I mean, maybe interesting is a bad word. The results were delightful and confusing at the same time. So what happened was we went and we counted these posts and we came to 11. Interestingly enough, 11 is the only number on the clock face in the painting, which is darkened. 11 is off center in this L. So that's how we knew it was the number 11, the 11th fence post, and not necessarily the center of the L. And it didn't matter from which side of the L you counted, 11 was the same post from either. It didn't matter which side you started on. Right, because 11. 11 was 11, no matter how you look at it. Because 11's the middle, yeah. Right. So we shoved a probe into the ground, and what we found was a, a, a pipe. Yeah, George has a, an affection for sewer pipes. I hate sewer pipes, man. Every time I go to dig, I find a sewer pipe. It's crazy. We dug up a little bit of an area. I didn't want to destroy Gallier Hall, but then again, this is right after Mardi Gras, so it was already pretty well destroyed. It was pretty hammered, yeah. Yeah, there was no real grass to speak of. We dug, and we got to the sewer pipe, and we were super let down, and then I guess we just kind of went back and did the podcast, right? That was when we went and did the podcast. We tied it up. We went back and did the podcast. After the podcast, I believe I stayed up for pretty long at night editing it down. You guys kind of slept. No, no, no. We stayed up a pretty long time drinking fish bowls full of rum on Bourbon Street. Oh, right, right. So I was editing the podcast, and those guys were drinking fish bowls of rum on Bourbon Street. When they finally got back, I had gone to sleep. I believe I went to sleep when you guys got back, and then we all got up early and went out to breakfast that next morning. Speaking of all of that, that's another great thing about New Orleans. You go to St. Augustine, you go to a bar, you, you order like a rum runner, right? It comes in a cup, just a little plastic cup. You go to New Orleans, you order a rum runner, it costs like 11 bucks and it comes in a literal fish bowl. It's huge. They're not messing around. I drank like three of those. It was great. They're not messing around there. I remember what happened. We got up the next morning. We had breakfast. Me and you went and walked down to Jackson Square. No, no, no. I'm not going to let you skip this. Yes, we had breakfast. Yes, you had the Banana Fosters. And yes, we met the coolest waitress ever. She was giving me the hardest time, and you guys were eating up every single... You were lapping it up like maple syrup. So John screwed up. John really wanted Banana Fosters. But when the waitress came around, I guess she, he was enamored by her. So he ordered French toast. Well, there was only one French toast on the menu. Let's be clear. It was the Bananas Foster French toast. There was no normal French toast on the menu. So I just figured, right, French toast, she knows what I mean. No. She did know what you mean. She brought you 
French toast. You were like, I wanted Bananas Fosters, ma'am. I didn't say it like Sling Blade. I wanted Bananas Foster, ma'am. <laughs> Come on. It wasn't that morose. I meant to order Bananas Fosters. She gave you such a hard time about it. It was so great. It was amazing. So you finally get your Bananas Fosters, and we eat. It was delicious. And then we wandered around. We took a walk to Jackson Square and looked at all of the things there, and You know, yes, Jackson Square does look similar to the clock. It's not an exact match. There's a lot of little lines going on in that path around the park that aren't attributed for in the image here. I know there's people looking around that area as well. That was the area where we decided to walk over and check out the moonwalk, which was pretty heavily under construction at the time. Yeah, I think even now it's just gone. Everything we knew about the moonwalk is just gone. Yeah, they'd had that whole thing torn up. Anyway, we went down to the moonwalk, and that's where I pointed out to George. I started to recite the San Francisco verse and just started pointing to all kinds of things that were there. And I think we had alluded to this on a prior podcast, but just goes to show you how vague these things are that you can, depending on your interpretation, you can come up with all sorts of things in any given city. So we're always looking for these little confirmers that let us know that we're exactly in the right spot. Like this couldn't be anything else. What did we do then, George? We checked out the moonwalk area. It was all destroyed. I think we walked back and I pretty much said that I was exhausted and I was think I took off at that point. I had some things to do the next day. At some point you left me, Rachel and Brett alone. Yeah, I just took off. You're like, whatever. We hit a sewer pipe. All right, it's not here. Got the podcast done, did all our stuff. I took off and I had to get back to reality and and work and some other things that were going on. George, Rachel, and Brett decided to stay another night, I believe, right? Bet you wish you hadn't taken off now. Well, yeah, of course. You you always (laughs) regret it later. So why don't you tell him the big news? Fill him in on what happened. So you took off and we started wandering around the town. We figured, you know, it's New Orleans. You know, you can't just sit in a hotel. Uh, We wandered around Armstrong Park because Rachel had never seen it. Brett was looking for some more stuff down there. Again, I didn't really find anything in Armstrong Park. We met the... uh, Except a bunch of homeless people. No, there weren't any homeless people in Armstrong Park. (laughs) There was just one dude dressed up like a lady with feathers. He asked me for a cigar and I gave him one. By the way, for the guy who digs on Milwaukee so much, let me remind you, New Orleans, number three most dangerous place to live in the u.s yeah but it's new orleans yeah it's new orleans okay i'm just saying i'm just saying it's worth the danger i'd rather live in sarasota my friend so we uh we met the the guy who was voted the king of treme during mardi gras he's a super cool guy apparently he designed the logo for the treme tv show we sat around and talked to him for like 45 minutes until he was ready to close up his little shop which is just a table sitting outside of armstrong park He showed us pictures of Armstrong Park in the 80s and of the French Quarter in the 80s. He had these big photo albums full of just pictures of all of these people who had been around during that period of time. He was apparently a member of the uh, Rebirth Brass Band. He was one of the founding members of Rebirth Brass Band. All right. So he had all these pictures of musicians and all these stories. And he was closing up shop, but we weren't really done talking. So he invited us to his mother's house for red beans and rice. Come on over to mom's. So we go to the king's mom's house for red beans and rice. Come to my mom. She's cooking up some sausage and peppers. I mean, it was it was crazy. After we got done there, we were walking down the street and like, there's Kermit Ruffins. We're just walking past Kermit Ruffins. Oh, yeah, sure. We met this dude who he was having trouble with his umbrella. So we fixed his umbrella for him. It was a little, it was drizzling a little bit. We fixed his umbrella and, and we just kind of decided to hang out and wander around. He was a local. His name was Tony. He was a great guy. He wanted to show us the market in the French Quarter. We wandered down there. Tony and Brett are a little ahead of me and Rachel. And we noticed this dude just playing guitar and singing. That dude's really good. Like, I want to just sit and chill and listen to this guy for a little while, but we couldn't get Brett and Tony's attention. We had to keep going. It took, like, like 20 steps for me to realize we had just passed Dr. John. There is no way that wasn't Dr. John. Dr. John is just sitting in the French market playing his, playing his guitar. I'm no sorry. No way. It was Dr. John. All right. Here's a question. How many drinks had you had at that point? Because that could explain a lot. There was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot. Tony had introduced us to this thing called uh, New Orleans juice, which is just like crappy uh, malt liquor. Oh, gin and juice. 
It's no, it's it's malt liquor, but it's flavored with like orange and passion fruit. It's horrible. Oh, it, it tastes awful. horrible. But it's super cheap. And you can just walk into a store and walk out with a can and just drink it like walking down the street. Well, you gotta get a go cup. <laughs> Every convenience store has these disposable cups that when you buy your beer, you just ask for a go cup. They give it to you, you pour it, you just walk down the street drinking. It's amazing. Is that a legal term or is that New Orleans slang? The go cup? The give me the go cup. I mean, everybody's got the go cup. <laughs> Wasn't there a rainstorm brewing too? I remember something about rain coming. There was. There was a storm and one of our friends wanted me to check out the moonwalk. We had told her that the moonwalk is closed for construction. But she really wanted some pictures of it, so I essentially broke into a construction zone just to get pictures of the moonwalk while it was under construction for her. Perfect. We we don't adhere to breaking the law on the podcast, just saying. But it was New Orleans, and I had had <laughs> New Orleans juice. Right, so when in Rome, you I know. I mean, you're not murdering anybody. <laughs> How harmful can you be? You're just taking some pictures. So we did that, and I, I looked at Brett and Rachel, and I was like, you know, I can't come here and just hit a pipe. They had redone that whole area in 85 there's a huge like there's a plaque that went in yeah, yeah there's a plaque on the street literally right in front of where the 11th post is that tells you about how they're redoing that whole area in 1985 yeah, it looked like a manhole cover right where a sewer pipe would be <laughs> it looks just like a manhole cover so i got to thinking what if that is a manhole cover what if what i'm hitting was put in in 1985 what if that's like a water main going to Gallier Hall that was, you know, put in during one of the restorations? What if it's just an extension? What if it wasn't there in 1981? Okay. I got to check Gallier Hall out again. So I did. I left them with my new friend, Tony, which is what you're supposed to do <laughs> when you come to a new town. Just leave your fiance with a random local that you met an hour ago that's got you super drunk. And I walked back to our hotel. I got a shovel and I just started digging. A small area. I knew. Hold on. Hold on. No, let's just touch on this. You left your fiance. Well, Brett was there. Brett's a strong man. He could stand up to Tony. You let the liquor do the thinking. I got you. Yes, yes, yes. It's fine. They were in a coffee shop at the time. It's okay. <laughs> I went back and I got a shovel. The ground was already pretty soft from where we were digging. So I just kind of cleared that out. And I started going around the sewer pipe. And that's when I got interesting things. Okay. Digging around the sewer pipe, what I found was three broken pieces of plexiglass. All right. Small pieces, less than like half of a dollar bill. Like if you were to split a dollar bill down the middle. Sure, sure. Was it eighth inch plastic? It was quarter inch. Quarter inch plastic. And I found six pieces of ceramic. Now, the ceramic was weird. The ceramic didn't feel like, like if you were to break a plate and leave it for... 50 years you're going to pick it up and it's still going to be hard you can go in saint augustine and dig anywhere and find ceramic from the indians that's still really hard if you found an intact bowl from five thousand years ago you could still use that as a bowl you know this wasn't like that the top maybe tenth of an inch of the outside of these pieces of ceramic were soft it was very soft if you put your fingernail in it you could leave it in an indention like they were somewhat mushy the top like tenth of an inch was mushy okay I mean, not super mushy. It took a little bit of force, but you could do it. Was the ground wet where you were digging this up at? Was It was raining, so yeah. Okay. But I, I see what you're getting at. This was, I assume it was below the waterline because we were in, you can tell when you have wet ground versus compacted mud, and this was compacted mud. I think that close to the Mississippi River, there would have been significant flooding in that area, all over that whole area. The interesting thing about Lafayette Park is it's not below sea level. It's raised up a good bit. During Katrina, it wasn't severely flooded. It was damaged from winds and whatnot, but there wasn't a significant amount of flooding there. So I don't know why this ground is so saturated with water, but it is. You dig down. Well, it's a swamp. Well, yeah. <laughs> you dig down maybe 10 inches in this ground, maybe a little less, and you hit compacted mud. That's where I found all of this stuff. Now, these pieces weren't nondescript. They had obvious designs on them. Portions of them had been obviously carved. But this is New Orleans, right? There's a lot of weird shit underground in New Orleans. There's a lot of old stuff in New Orleans. It's an old place, a man once said. There's a lot of old stuff in New Orleans. And this is the center of, of Mardi Gras, right? There's going to be all sorts of like tokens and, and throws. Anything ceramic could have been thrown down there, stomped into the ground. I don't know. Who knows? 
portions of this were painted. Mm. They were painted like a silver color. Very interesting. And one, one piece looks remarkably like a part of Brian Zinn's cask. Oh, very interesting. So now we, I'm acting surprised. I knew about this, but it is very interesting. And I'm sure everybody listening out there is wondering, what do we have here? Brian being on the team and a friend of ours, we have tons of pictures of, from all angles of his pieces of cask and the different portions of everything. I think Matt was even trying to put them all together in some way using a digital format. So we have a bunch of pictures of them. And you compared one of these pieces. It's remarkably similar to something that you see on Brian's cask. So remarkable that you would say that's unique. I would say it's unique, but I'm not comfortable without a key or without a full cask to say I've found this cask. We don't know. We found something. I found something interesting, but I don't live in New Orleans, so I can't dig the rest of it up. There you have the big news, folks. George found something, and it wasn't a sewer pipe. It was a sewer pipe. It was stuff underneath the sewer pipe. Listen, this doesn't mean that they're all buried under sewer pipes. Let's just get that clear right now. I want to say, man, I don't know what this is. I'm pretty confident that there's a cask at Gallier Hall. I'm pretty confident. I'm like 90% sure. But and there's that 10% that says this could be the, the piece that I have is a face. And it's a distinct face, but it could be the face from a throw. I don't, I don't know. Right. Who knows? It could be a piece of landscaping. It could be anything. It could be a part of the remodeling of the face of Gallier Hall when they had it all torn down to reface. It could be anything. But I'm there with you because I think that those dimples on that pillar are so unique and distinct and so right on that it couldn't be anywhere else. And there's too many other things going on right in that area. I'm there with you. I'm a firm believer. Now, we can't, we don't have the authority or we just don't have the clout to say, hey, we found one. But we wanted to, especially George wanted to tell this story for a while now. We've been waiting until the right moment when we did the New Orleans podcast and we had to get a few others out of the way. But I would say it's a pretty significant thing. Can we get some pictures to post so we could show people what it looks like? Yeah, I'll, I'll post some pictures of some of the pieces and the uh, plexiglass. I'll make a map of where everything was found. It was not found. A real treasure map. It, a real treasure map. <laughs> it was not found in like, I had to dig a bit. Like I had to, once I found the first piece, I was super excited. So I dug back a little further and I followed the pipe and I found another piece. And then I found a, like a group of three. I'm thinking that what actually happened was the pipe was and that thing was destroyed and it scattered along the length of the pipe. But I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't know. We can get some clarification coming up with Joelle and Trelling, who may know something about the cask. We can ask her, certainly, if it's even possible, if the thing was fired or if it wasn't fired. Good chance that if it wasn't fired, that it may have just been sitting in wet or damp ground and had to turn back into clay. If it was sitting in, in the wet ground for many, many, many years. For a long time, the people said that there were no metal in these casks. We know there are. Yeah. There are. There, there's metal in the key and there's metal in the lid. As far as my knowledge goes, you cannot fire ceramic that has metal in well, it. Well, it's problematic. They don't do it. It's super problematic. The ceramic gets up to, what, 1,200 degrees? The metal melts. Yeah, there's all kinds of air problems. There's all kinds of issues that you can have with it. Maybe Joellen knows something about it. They're all exact replicas of each other. I would think that they were poured. Yeah, I would think they were poured. I would think they were not fired. We'll find out. That's the big story, folks. If you have any questions, George or I are happy to answer them. George is probably a better person to ask as I had hit the road. Unfortunately, I miss all the good fun. Uh-huh. Yeah. George can answer any questions about that. We'll post some pictures up. I think I still have some pictures of our trip and maybe some of the things that we saw along our way so we can give a picture tour of what we did. And I guess we should say happy 4th of July to everybody, right? Happy 4th of July. I want to thank George for rubbing in everything that I missed out on one last time. Let's move on to something really special. This month, we are honored to welcome Joellen Trilling to the show. She's a well-established artist in the format of mixed-media sculptures, paintings. She does garments. Her work goes back to the 1970s, and she was also one of the artists involved with The Secret as the creator of the Fair Folk sculptures, which were used in all of the photos in the book. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the podcast, Joellen. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. 
Before we get into your contributions to The Secret, let's talk a little bit about your history and your work. You're known for doing mixed media sculptures. Can you tell us what that is and how you create these intriguing little sculptures? I think they're anthropomorphic mostly. They're built over a wire armature with batting stitched onto it to make a shape. And then they're covered and painted and glued and all sorts of things to make them as sort of realistic as possible. The uh, armature allows them to be somewhat flexible until they're hammered onto a base. They're, they're movable. What is your history as an artist? I know you did some cover art for Heavy Metal magazine back in the late 70s. Was that some of your first uh, commercial work or were there prior pieces that you did? I did very little commercial work. I think the first one was uh, editorial art for Playboy, a couple of those. And then Heavy Metal, I'm not sure how exactly that happened, but there was a cover art. It wasn't done especially for Heavy Metal, but I think somebody walked past the store the gallery where I sold my work and saw it and asked if they could use it as a cover. And it was a, a rocking centaur. It had a female nude riding on its back. In your doll sculptures, the animals take on human personas. Even the objects of nature in some of your paintings take on characteristics of other things. Where did this imagination come from? Are you a Lewis Carroll fan by chance? Absolutely. I think those were some of the first books. I mean, my mother read to me when I was a kid. But one of the reasons that I use animals, it's so much easier for me to make a humanoid animal than it is for me to make a straight human. I'm really bad at humans. <laughs> I try and yeah. avoid humans at all costs. It seems to me that you can view art in one of two ways. You either look at art and you appreciate like the way the art's made or, you know, the technique or you can also look at art and enjoy it because of how it makes you feel. And I look at your sculptures and you're not looking at just a thing. You're looking at an experience that the sculptures have. You're, you're sort of placed in a um, situation. My favorite that I can see that you've done is Lisa and Albert discuss the theory of relatives in the atomic age. And it looks like you're just walking in on a discussion between these two creatures. It's amazing how you seem to be able to pull that off with all of these sculptures. I started out as a kid making toys. I got older and better at it. <laughs> so playing, you know, along, that's what I do. That sort of leads me to the next question I had. Your work's been described as wry tableau. Now, for the listeners, tableau is when still elements in a scene together with other elements tell a deeper story than the individual elements would on their own. And I find that aspect of your work pretty fascinating. There's some Deep uses of sarcasm that can be made, like the landlord's last deal with the two rats shaking hands over the bubble, or the one that's called Abduction of Helen with the two horses riding a motorcycle. There's some great sarcasm that can be seen in there, but in other sculptures, you seem to capture sort of a Ralph Steadman kind of feel where you're just capturing a snapshot of a specific attitude like the lovebirds or the arranged marriage one with the rhinos. When you're creating these pieces, does the theme of the work evolve as you create it, or does the creation take place well before you start manufacturing the pieces? They sort of unfold. Um, I might start with something that inspires me. A lot of it has to do with things that are in my life. So Lisa and Albert discuss the theory of relatives in the atomic age. On the back of the couch or the front of the couch between the two creatures is a photograph of my cousins and me in the 50s in our little storm coats. It's sort of stitched to the couch. My sister lives in Spain and people are, are always saying, oh, que mono, que mono, which means how cute. And I, I always think, um, but that's a monkey. <laughs> mono is a <laughs> monkey. <laughs> so, you know, it all gets mixed up. You're able to take and twist the arms and, and move the positions of the, the figurines and, and things kind of just take shape as you're doing that? It allowed me to be able to give them some attitude, you know, um, and also, so a, a figure can look more relaxed as it's sitting on a piece of furniture, a couch or a chair. It says that you started to really focus on painting after 9-11. What inspired you to make that switch? I've always painted, but I realized I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. I'd spent maybe 35 years building these mixed-media sculptures and selling them to make a living and. After 9-11, things changed pretty dramatically as far as, you know, the downtown scene. And, you know, what happened is that it wasn't as much fun, <laughs> really. 
because I was also teaching people, trying to teach them techniques of how to take an idea and build it into something that they wanted to express. And in order to do that, you sort of have to parse everything out into understandable steps. Once I looked at what I was going to be making <laughs> and I saw all the steps, I didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> so for me, not knowing how to paint at all, really, um, it was sort of more interesting to, to start doing that and just sort of fall into the abyss and wander around. How did the garments come about? Is that something that's recent or have you been doing that for a long time? The gallery on Madison, it was between 61st and 62nd Street called Julie Artisan's Gallery. Her main emphasis was wearables. Um, in the 70s, they were gorgeously embroidered clothes and dyed and all sorts of things that are one of a kind. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do that. So I took a couple of garments that I had made and just started drawing on them. <laughs> Some of them looked like old newspapers and they were just black and white. And there was only one in color. But Your best recollection, what was the art scene like in New York City in the 70s? What kinds of places would everybody mingle at? How did everybody meet during that time period? I've never been in the art scene. <laughs> I had some friends that would go to clubs and such. I think there was one club called Interferon that I remember going to. A friend of mine had started it. That was sort of interesting, but it really wasn't my thing. <laughs> Were there a lot of gallery nights back then? Probably downtown, but I didn't go downtown so much. Mostly I lived in Midtown, somewhere below or above 57th Street. The gallery, I'm telling you, it was pure chance. I'd make something, I'd bring it two blocks to the gallery, They'd sell it. I'd go home. I'd make something else. Bring it to. <laughs> That's what I did. I mean, I. You fell upwards. Yeah, I fell up. <laughs> like throwing down, but better. <laughs> How did it turn out that you ended up meeting Byron Price? I'm really not sure. <laughs> I think it had to do with 21st century communications, maybe, because that was the first thing I did for him. Although I had friends that were working with him in Byron Price Visual Publications, I'm not sure if it was before or after, that we're doing Choose Your Own Adventure series books for kids. I remember those. Yeah, I think there's a throwback <laughs> to the 80s. I've seen them again in bookstores. But anyway, the, the people that I knew was a man named Ron Martinez, who I was living with at the time. I think he was working with Byron. It seemed like a, a lot of the Lampoon people were sort of running in his scene as well. Right. I'm sure that those times are a little hazy for everybody in that scene as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm 70 years old, so <laughs> my brain is leaking out my ears. So, do you... <laughs> I, have the, I have the maitre demon staring at me right now <laughs> with a very snide expression. You do have some of those left. How many figures did you make? 40. 40. I think there were 40. Well, maybe two of them had already been made. One that was called the Unreal Estate Broker was actually the Playboy editorial piece called Why the British Like to Dress in Drag. And it was a portrait of Robert Morley. And I, <laughs> I added wings to it and a, a hat that had kind of a building on top of it. We used that in places. You could be a little more liberal and fun back then, I guess. Yeah. When you worked with Byron, what kind of person was he that we know very little about the man? Sounds like you know a lot. <laughs> Well, we know a lot about his work, but we know very little about who he was as a person or how he went about doing any of this stuff. Was he micromanaging it? No. How did you work with him? How was the relationship? He was actually very respectful and very kind. He was funny. He didn't really give me a lot of parameters. I mean, he knew what kind of work I did. I guess he had seen them in Julie's or maybe I showed him pictures or something. He just said, this is work for a year. You're going to be making 40 creatures. Here's a list of the creatures that I, I want you to work on. And I did, but, and I'm not really sure. I think we spoke maybe with Ben Asen, who was the photographer, discussed the sizes and things. When you were working on the book, did you work with Ben at all of the on-site locations or did he do some of that? With, yes. Oh, so you traveled to all of the places. I know there was like a phone booth in Chinatown that I recognized in New York, Columbus Circle and some other things, but there were some out-of-town ones too. Did you go? I didn't do out-of-town. So you did all the ones locally? Yeah, yeah, I did. What was that like working with Ben on location? It was really fun. It was really fun because 
a couple of times in looking at the book with Monty Irving. Oh, yeah, that's right. And uh, Henny Youngman yeah, as well. Right. So I think those were in Byron's apartment, actually, where we photographed them. He was, gosh, what a gentleman Mr. Irving was. And he was very, he just let us do stuff, which was great. He was very kind. What you're saying is Byron didn't give you any specific instructions about, I want you to put the figure here and the shot needs to be from this angle or nothing like that. It was just kind of... I think he was also there. I think some of them he was there because, you know, he had an idea. I know it was definitely me and it... I'm not sure whose refrigerator this is called the Household Unfamiliars. I have a feeling it's Byron's. And there's an arm in here. That's definitely Byron's. Were there any interesting or funny moments that you can recall in working on this? Were there any interesting people you got to meet aside from Mr. Youngman and Monty Irvin? Anything strange that happened? Any funny moments you can recall? Everybody just loves hearing stories. I just remember Henny Youngman saying, take this dolly, please. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember there was uh, one that it was a genie in the bottle. It was a genie. I forget the name of it. The guy that was supposedly a drunk holding this bottle with the genie coming out of it. I walked downtown wherever that was shot, walked right past the guy thinking he was, you know, an indigent. Everybody did. And then all of a sudden, he said, surprise, <laughs> I'm the actor. Do you recall what year he contracted you to do it, the work in? I think it was 1981. The book came out in 82. The book came out uh, either late 81 or, or early 82. All yeah. right. Then it was 80 and 81. Okay. It was a year's work, basically. Okay. So y you basically started in 80 and then turned, you know, the pictures and everything were all done within a year. I think it was, yes. But I think he was photographing, it, you know, as things were being done at the same time and also as the writing was being done. Because I, I had say, to read about the different things, the different creatures. So. I, I want to say that one of the photographs has a, a, it's a magazine stand, and it was done in August of 81. Oh, yeah, the Phantasma Glory, right. Mm -hmm. I see that. I know you said that, that Byron gave you a list of, of the creatures he wanted you to make, but how much input did you have in their sort of, their story? He gave me this printout of mythological creatures and a discussion of what they were supposed to represent. This was like about an inch thick of something that he had photocopied. There were things like, you know, the manticore and all sorts of different. So he, I think he wanted me to incorporate what the mythological creatures were and try and meld them with whatever uh, Sean Kelly and Ted Mann were writing. There was one funny thing. I had to make Julia Child sitting in a bowl of pea soup for one of the I guess it was the Saucier's Apprentice or something. A lot of the pieces I sold in Julie Artisan's gallery. And that was one that sold, and it sold to a friend of Julia's <laughs> <laughs> who had her over for dinner with that as a centerpiece, <laughs> I think, from what I heard. I don't know. She didn't find it amusing or did. I don't know that. <laughs> well, I hear she's a hard read. Now she is especially. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joanne, thank you for coming on the show and telling us a little bit about what you remember about the book and your work, and especially about your own work, which people can find out more about on your website. It's www.joellentrilling.com. Just one word, right? Yes. And can people... Uh, purchase items from there or contact you or whatever. Don't contact her about the secret. <laughs> there, there's not much. It's mostly just a gallery. I don't have much for sale. So. Okay. A couple paintings. That's it. If you'd like to see her work and some of the things that we talked about in the interview, you can go to the website. They're fantastic, whimsical little pieces that really, I mean, Georgia, am I wrong? They're, they're fantastic to look at. They're really fun. Oh yeah. They're great. They're great. Okay, thank you. We'd like to thank Joe Ellen Trilling for coming on the show and sharing some of her experience and stories from working on The Secret. I know we mostly talk about the puzzle itself, but there is a backside to this. Quite a few skilled people put a good amount of time to make this project, and learning about the people who help make this book can be just as fascinating as the book itself. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and please like us on Facebook as there will be some interesting news forthcoming 
that you don't want to miss out on. Another game is afoot. That's all I can say for now. And we have a number of Facebook pages, one for each city, as a matter of fact, where you can keep up on localized info. Please visit our website. It's the number 12 and then the word treasures. So that's 12treasures.com, where you can find all of the past episodes of The Secret Podcast as well. Until next time, happy hunting, and you take care now. Tune in next time for another edition of The Secret Podcast with your hosts, JM and Bernstein. Available on iTunes.